Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter. And today I have a solo episode for you that we are going to dive in deep into a specific topic. It loosely relates to training in the heat, but it's really a main focus on hydration and electrolytes and kind of how to figure out if and what you need in those, or at least get started in in kind of personalizing that for your specific lifestyle and individual needs. The interesting thing is we see a really wide range of things like sodium loss per person at the individual level. So we'll touch on that a bit. Uh, I highlight a little bit about treadmill use as well, since we're kind of in the thick of the summer heat here now, and treadmills tend to be something where I think uh, extreme weather is where they get utilized the most, whether that be heat or the depths of winter in some of our northern climates. Uh, that's when I found them to be the most useful is to try to get out of that for a little bit. So I touch on that a little bit, although a little more briefly than the electrolyte side, I think it's definitely more of a deep dive on that. But some good content for kind of the summer months as we are likely in some cases deep into training plans or maybe getting started for a fall winter race that you can use this in in those efforts also a bit of an update as to what's coming uh, i have a big a dose of interview podcasts that will be coming up likely starting in the second half of July and then possibly leaking into a little bit of August. Uh, One of the reasons for that is I'm going to be actually speaking at the KetoCon conference this weekend, which is Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, that second weekend in July. And I'm going to be doing a presentation on low carbohydrate nutrition within endurance training. So if you happen to be coming to KetoCon, uh, definitely come check that out. I'm presenting on Friday, I believe early afternoon. So that'll be there. But part of the other reason I'm going to be there is I'm going to be in the S Fuels booth there pretty much the majority of the time when I'm not doing my presentation. So Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And with uh, some of that, I will be doing some interviews, live podcast interviews. So if you want to catch the episode early and in person, you will have an option to do that if you want to come over to the S Fuels booth and check that out. Right now, I have... Tara Garrison and Kara Collier scheduled for 4.30 p.m. on Friday and Saturday. And I'm trying and will likely have Logan Delgado scheduled as well. So those would be the three interviews. Um, Tara's a health and fitness coach, uh, low-carbohydrate, ketogenic stuff. She's got a lot of uh, content around that. Kara Collier will probably do a deep dive into continuous glucose monitors to a degree. Um, I think she's got a lot of interesting information on that as well as being a a dietitian. And then Logan Delgado is a weight loss coach um, and someone who lost 70 pounds with the ketogenic diet. So it'll be interesting to see like what kind of drew him to that, what seemed to work for him at the individual level and what he sees working for people that he's working with too. Because I think it's always interesting to see what dietary trends and habits will work well for one person. And is there any reason to believe maybe you're someone that would lean that direction versus a different direction? So that's kind of the the upcoming stuff. I will definitely be doing some solo episodes mixed in with that too on some topics that get sent my way. Uh, one thing I'm looking to possibly do is rather than kind of the format I've been doing where we'll do three, maybe four questions. And usually it's like, a little bit of a, a dive of say maybe eight to 10 minutes per question. I may look at kind of 
anchoring some of those or breaking them up and just doing a much deeper analysis like I did with this particular one around hydration and electrolytes for some future ones too. So if you do have those questions or topics that you think uh, my take on uh, would be valuable, definitely send them my way. There's a few ways to do that. You can reach out over email at hpopodcast at gmail.com or shoot me a note on social media. You can find me on Instagram at Zach Bitter and Twitter at ZBitter. Instagram is probably the quickest one for social media. Email is the quickest. Um, cool. So yeah, that's what we got coming up. If uh, if you want to check out any of the episodes I that ahead of time and ad free, uh, you can do that by supporting the show on the show Patreon page. The show Patreon page can be accessed through the show landing page, which is just zachbetter.com forward slash HPO. On that landing page, you will also find links to all the details for the episodes. So if you want to check out the show notes, get a link to the video, the audio, the Patreon page, or anything specific to an episode, those are also on that landing page, as well as single donation links to that you can do either with credit debit or even crypto now so if you want to support the show but you're not into patreon that is another way to do it monetarily also another thing that goes a really long ways that can help out that's non-monetary non-monetary based is supporting the show by liking subscribing and sharing the episodes that you enjoy with your friends and family so if you want to help out spread the word that way that helps the show out a lot helps me grow and continue to produce more episodes All right, and the final way to support the show is we do have show sponsors. I usually try to keep it to two per episode. Uh, If one of those appeals to you, you think it'd be something that works within your lifestyle and want to check it out, going to them through the show link is a great way to let them know that you came to them from the HPO podcast. This episode sponsors and all of them can be found along with their discount links and details at zackbitter.com forward slash hpo sponsors those links are always also in the show notes if you access that stuff through there Uh, this episode's sponsors come from element lmnt makes an electrolyte supplement with no sugar each packet is loaded with a thousand milligrams of sodium 200 milligrams of potassium and 60 milligrams of magnesium they come in convenient single serve packets that make them great for bringing along for a run hike to the gym or while traveling my go-to's are their citrus flavor during long runs and their chocolate flavor in my morning coffee if you are hesitant or would like to try out elementy first before you purchase they are offering a flavor sample pack with one of each of their flavors for free to anyone who uses the hpo url if you want to check them out and support hpo along the way you can head over to drink lmnt.com forward slash hpo that's drink lmnt.com forward slash hpo links can be found in the show notes as well and at zachbetter.com forward slash hpo sponsors one more thing to add about that is that free sample pack is good for new or returning customers so if you've checked out element in the past through here but want to get a full spectrum of the different flavors and see if there's a one that you maybe like better than the other you are more than welcome to do that also supporting this show is Gooder. Gooder makes $25 active sunglasses for anyone. Gooder sunglasses are lightweight, comfortable, don't move when you move, all for $25. They have no slip, no bounce, are all polarized and all fun. All Gooders are 100% UV protective and 100% 
polarized. Whether you are running, cycling, hiking, or simply spending some time in the sun, Gooder will stay snug and comfy. Gooder is running free U.S. shipping on all orders over $50 and 30-day free returns, a one-year warranty, and 100% carbon neutral, and 1% for the planet. So if you head to Gooder.com, that's G-O-O-D-R.com forward slash HPO, You'll also get 15% off your entire order when you use the promo code HPO at checkout. As I mentioned before, you can also find the links to that in the show notes or at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. All right, folks, let's get into this episode. We are going to go over a couple topics that I think will be useful for the listeners going into the summer. I've been getting a lot of questions lately about hydration, electrolytes, training in the heat, and that sort of thing, which I assume is just the likely cyclical nature of seasons and for those of us who deal with warmer weather climates out there. So a couple questions that we're going to hit on today is treadmill running, which I think is applicable when it's really hot outside. I think treadmills become a more viable option for people, and it also indicates maybe or influences maybe the pros and cons of treadmill running, but we're going to talk somewhat generally about treadmill training as well. Uh, but I will touch on the weather component of that as we move along. The bigger one that we're going to hit on today though, is a question that came into me via the HPO podcast email, which if you have questions for future episodes and would like to submit them via email, hpopodcast at gmail.com is a great way to get in touch with me with those. This one specifically has to do with uh, being able to keep in fluid intake on longer runs and hikes and just curious if, uh, if they're doing it right or if things are not going right, what can they do is maybe another way to look at this particular question. And then just the whole concept of adding some minerals like uh, magnesium, potassium, and sodium to your water when you're out there for longer periods of times and likely consuming a larger quantity of overall water during that workout or hike or whatever it is. Um, what you should be looking for with those in, in terms of like ratios, focusing on one or the other and that sort of stuff. So we're going to go through what we kind of know about that and how you can start gathering data to fine tune that sort of stuff. Uh, all right. So before we get rolling though, if you enjoy this podcast and would like to support the human performance outliers podcast, there's a few ways to do it both monetarily and non-monetarily. Uh, the two monetary options at the moment is through the show's Patreon page, which also gets you early release episodes and ad-free audio recordings. Uh, you can access the link to the Patreon page at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. Also, if you don't want to use Patreon, but you want to make a donation, you can do single one-time donations through a variety of ways, including crypto, also at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. Uh, Finally, liking, subscribing, and sharing the episodes that you find enjoyable and useful really helps me grow the episode viewership, and uh, that's very helpful in allowing me to spend more time recording podcasts. All right, <clears throat> let's get into some of these questions. We're going to tackle the hydration one first. So um, I'm going to read the question as it was submitted, and then I'll kind of structure it in a way that I think is going to get at the op, get at the the questions at hand here. But the question was, I have a hard time keeping up my fluid intake on longer runs and or hikes. I am sure I'm not the only one. And then also I am contemplating adding minerals, sodium, 
potassium, magnesium to my water, what should I be looking for? Example, magnesium per serving and what would be a good indicator whether the amount is sufficient? Would a sweat analysis be beneficial? And if yes, where can I get one done and how much do they cost? All right. So let's, uh, let's tackle some, some specifics with this first. Uh, one is just keeping up with fluid intake on longer runs and our hikes. So generally speaking, you don't necessarily have to keep up in the sense of being able to have a one for one, or if I lose X pounds or kilograms of fluid during this effort, I need to replace that and essentially start and return at the exact same weight. Uh, research would indicate that around 2% of total body weight loss through sweat is where you're going to start seeing a performance dip. So defending that is maybe a better target than just trying to kind of uh, keep up with what you're actually going to lose, which is ultimately likely going to be an impossible effort, especially if you stretch it out long enough or in warm enough environments, because your body in most cases just simply is going to be able to process the fluids fast enough in order to do that. So it's sort of a losing battle and it's also a battle you don't need to fight. Also an interesting to consider with that too, and this is really into the performance realm here. So if you're out there just hiking, this is likely not something you're focusing on, but when we look at like the power ratio, power weight ratio component to like endurance racing, if you're not getting a reduction in performance by losing say one to 2% of your body weight from fluid loss, you are reducing your weight and presumably retaining that same power because you're not losing muscle. You're not losing your power, your power generating capacity by that reduction. And you may actually be better off at the end of the race being close to that line versus adequately in the sense of one for one water replacement over the course of the entirety of it, uh, which is just a kind of an interesting sidebar, I guess. Um, for, for folks wondering though, like, how do I make sure I am kind of staying on top of it? There are some interesting things to note along these lines. Uh, one is just finding a way to test sweat loss. So you can do this fairly easily actually at home and through a variety of different climates. If you want to know, like, what is my sweat loss rate when it's like room temperature versus maybe extreme heat or something like that, or even cold winter months, uh, you can do that. Generally speaking, the target time frame you're going to want to use is about 45 minutes to two hours for these tests. Generally, we want to try to isolate the sweat loss versus other things too, like using the bathroom, um, glycogen reduction, which will also contribute to kind of fluid fluctuations and things like that. We want to minimize the amount of that being changed. So we're not addressing a problem through drinking that it's not actually going to be a solution and then like overshoot the goal there. So that 45 minute to two hour range tends to kind of minimize those type of scenarios happening, especially if you're running like below your aerobic threshold. Um, with that kind of a test, what you want to do there is you want to, before you go out for your run, weigh yourself with as little amount of clothes on as possible. Uh, use the bathroom first if you need to, in order to kind of get that baseline number, then go out for your run. And if you decide to drink during that run, just keep track of how much you drink. When you get back, take a dry towel, take off all the clothes that are probably wet with your sweat and things like that. So you're kind of in that same state as when you weighed yourself before from an apparel standpoint or your products and things like that and weigh yourself. And with that number, you're going to see 
how much fluid you had you lost over the course of that run versus what you started with and if you did drink fluids you can just you can just take that and subtract it from that total so let's say that over the course of the run you lost 40 ounces of fluid and you consumed 20 ounces during that that would be a net loss of 60 ounces of fluid so that's something you'd want to consider too uh that means like you know now you have some numbers to start with now you have some idea of like you can run the numbers based on your body weight and that 2% reduction and start kind of piecing together a, a bit of a strategy as terms of what you likely will want to plan for now i say that in terms of likely plan for in reality and we're going to get into this a little bit you're likely going to want to focus a bit more on thirst and proper electrolyte uh, supplementation versus just drinking to a target number, because there's a lot of variables that could change that data you collected on that day. And what we do realize is thirst when adequately addressed does tend to be a pretty accurate predictor of what your needs are going to be when you're out there. Um, some interesting things just to add to this too, that I was looking into and kind of remembered these stories coming up, coming out when they uh, first did just to look at just how some of this research maybe is going to be a little bit of a moving target or not necessarily something to get too overwhelmed by. Uh, one of those was uh, a professional marathoner, Gebra Lassie. He won the Dubai marathon. I believe it was in, uh, when was that? Like some, some sometime in the early 2000s and he won it with a reduction of a 9.8 percent body weight loss so he extremely uh, surpassed that two percent marker that i've been speaking about um he ran it in two hours and five minutes too so it's not like he was like fading hard at the end or anything like that uh, we want to be careful with those type of anecdotes though because that is a very particular situation and a very specific person uh, when we look at the Ironman research on this topic, what it shows is there are some extremes of up to 11% reduction in some of the elites. But the important note is that the average loss was about 1% to 6% when looking at the totality. So let's touch on a couple of things that can impact that outside of just your general hydration. I talked about uh, the aspect of, um, of things like a glycogen. So as you're running, especially at faster intensities, your body is going to metabolize more of your muscle glycogen. You can hold, your body can contain roughly 500 grams. Now you're not going to deplete all those. That just simply won't happen. Your body will stop whatever you're doing before you get anywhere near zero. So don't think you're going to go from 500 to zero over the course of any workout. But the fact of the matter remains that with one gram of glycogen loss, or if you burn that one gram of glycogen, it is going to be tied to one to three grams of water that's stored alongside it. Now, this isn't like sweat loss where that water is just poof gone. It was used for evaporative cooling, presumably. Uh, when that's burned, that water that's tied to the glycogen isn't lost, but it's actually liberated and your body can reuse it internally. So this may be part of the reason why we see some of these elite runners losing well past that 2% point and still maintaining performance because a good chunk of that could be from them just depleting the, or running down their glycogen stores, liberating that water, and then using that as well. So they're not necessarily getting the same hit that they would expect if they just sweat that amount out and lost that through, uh, through that 
through, through that means. So just some interesting things to consider with that stuff when you're doing these tests and kind of starting. Once you have these numbers, like your fluid loss uh, per specific per hour, which is what you're probably going to want to end up looking at it at when you do these tests, you're giving yourself like a ballpark figure to start from. And then you can make adjustments based on kind of how you feel, how your workouts are going, what you're experiencing uh, and things like that. So let's get into the electrolyte side of this now. Um, this is where it gets fun and interesting. So the specific question was asking about a few different electrolytes. Really, when it comes to running, we want to focus on one primarily, partly because it's going to be the one that you're going to lose the vast amount of. And it's also going to be the one that ranges drastically further from one person to the next. So in terms of ratios, when we look at this, sodium will be dominant. So that's the one to focus on the most. The average person's sweat is only going to contain about 150 milligrams of potassium per liter uh, and magnesium about three to four milligrams per liter, while sodium can sometimes be over 2000 milligrams per liter. Now that's the high end, uh, roughly 20% of runners will exceed 1500 milligrams per liter, but some will even go below 200 milligrams. So this is just a massive range of sodium loss per liter per person. A lot of this is going to be, is going to be partly just your own genetics. And the other part of it's going to be just probably your diet. Like someone who's consuming lots of sodium in their day-to-day -day diet may actually lose quite a bit more when they're working out because their body's actively dumping some of that excess sodium and things like that. So these things will kind of play into what, where you're at. If we look at the averages, average person is going to have about 950 milligrams per liter of uh, sodium loss. So that can be kind of a, a target that is, uh, is a little more good for starting points if you have no clue. Um, with that said, there are some kind of fun little field tests you can do to kind of gauge whether you're maybe on the high end or the low end of this. So if you get salt stains on your skin or your clothes, that can be a sign that you lose more salt than the average person. Remember though, that dry climates will impact this from like faster evaporation. So if you ever run in like warm, dry weather, you may notice like, or you may feel like I didn't even sweat this entire time, but then you realize, oh, I lost five pounds of fluid during that run or something like that. So, you know, that evaporation in the dry climate will likely that, that accelerated evaporation, I should say, will likely make it more likely to have salt stains show up on your clothes and things like that. So if you don't see this normally, and then you're on traveling in a dry climate and you see a lot more of it, just take note that that's going to be potentially a variance from humid to dry climates. Um, another way to kind of test this out, uh, is just like the taste of sweat or salt in your sweat, which is, this might sound kind of, kind of weird for people, but, uh, you can actually use this. So like things like if, uh, you lick your forearm, once you start sweating, if it's got like a real salty taste, uh, you probably have a higher salt loss, uh, per liter of water, um, or per liter of sweat while you're out there training versus someone who does that. And it's just kind of tastes relatively plain. You might be on the lower end of the spectrum. Um, other things to think about with that, uh, is things like also just like sweat stinging in your eyes can be an indication of like, that you got a little more higher concentration of sodium in your, in your sweat. Uh, these things are all just things to kind of pay attention to if you're looking for some added like personal data points to determine whether you're getting enough sodium or not or electrolytes or not. Uh, other things that are 
can kind of indicate that you may want to address the electrolytes a little more strictly is if you're feeling like faint or get a head rush when you stand up after exercising, or you just really start craving salty foods after workouts, you can, this can be something that maybe is indication that you're getting a low and you may want to consider going at least a thousand milligrams of sodium or higher in per liter in your, um, in your, uh, your electrolyte supplementation while you're out there and just try to see if that helps those symptoms kind of clear up. Uh, a few other things that you want to pay attention to that could be symptoms of electrolyte depletion, or I shouldn't say depletion, but just the a reduction beyond what you're going to really want from a performance and just a, a, a standard keeping them in line standpoint is, uh, you know, the sodium is going to help keep your body's fluids in balance. So if you're noticing a lot of fluctuations there, potassium is going to help with things like muscle contractions and ner nerve transmission. This is why potassium is sometimes recommended for things like cramping. Uh, potassium also keeps blood from clotting. It helps carry nutrients to cells, maintain blood healthy uh, blood pressure, and also things like uh, bone health. So uh, these are things to consider in terms of just making sure that you have these things in line. Uh, if sodium dips too low, eventually you can things like hyponatremia occurs. And we actually see this endurance sports sometimes when people are just guzzling a lot of water outside of thirst and not tying electrolytes to it because their body's bringing in essentially electrolyte free fluids and diluting the, the sodium that they do have on board. This can cause things like nausea and even vomiting. So that's a symptom to maybe pay attention to things like headaches, irritability, restlessness, fatigue, low energy, and in an extreme cases, cases, seizures. Uh, so hyponatremia is generally rare, but it is a symptom that can occur and is likely going to be more prevalent in endurance athletes who are uh, drinking beyond thirst and not paying attention to electrolytes. Uh, and, and sometimes people just have a, like a massively reduced their sodium in their diet too, which some people may have to do that. But, um, if you're, you're healthy, if you're healthy and don't have any issues, um, a massive reduction in sodium when you're training a lot may not be something that is beneficial for you at the individual level. So something to keep in mind, uh, if potassium dips too low, some of the symptoms of, or just weakness and fatigue can occur. So similar to the sodium stuff, uh, you do want to be mindful that too much isn't always better either. So don't just throw the kitchen sink at it, so to speak, and, and expect that to, to necessarily work in your favor. Um, we went over the ratios in terms of why we want to focus on sodium versus the other ones when you're out there working out. Uh, so I do want to talk about a little bit in terms of just uh, working on figuring out your specific starting point there. One thing to consider too, when it comes to electrolyte replacement, things like that, if you have adequate amounts of these electrolytes like sodium, potassium, and magnesium in your diet, then you supplementing them on workouts that are like less than 90 minutes isn't super necessary. Uh, especially if you're going to be consciously replacing them afterwards in your meals and things like that. So I would be more conscious of adding that electrolyte, uh, to your water when you start kind of branching out into that, like further than 90 minutes of exercise, extreme heat can impact this though. So pay attention to that. Like if you're going out in really hot weather, there's a lot of things you want, maybe want to be considering with that, but, uh, uh, that may change that 90 minute. Uh, starting point as well to, to think about. Um, a couple other things to touch on here 
the if you are struggling still after kind of running your fuel tests, playing around with some electrolytes, and you're noticing it's just not you're not finding what's working for you. You can go and get a, a sweat test done, which will tell you exactly the loss that you have at the individual level and find out where you fall between that very low 200 milligram number and that kind of above 2000 milligram number. I actually had a friend who went in and did this with his wife and his wife came back at like 500 milligrams and he came back at like 2000. So it was like they had very different uh, targets when they were out there training. And um, that was probably good for them to know. You can get these tests done for, I, I believe they're around like 200, maybe $250, depending on where you go. Uh, you might be able to, I, I believe you, you can add these things on to just like normal blood draw panels, I believe too. So if you're doing something like that anyway, it might just be worth asking uh, the physician if they can add that to your to your list of stuff to do. I'm not sure if you can do at-home ones with this. You may be as well. I'd be interested if listeners have any uh, experience with that, if there's something that they've done in the past and, and used uh, that would be um, something to, to go for. If you're struggling with being able to access that or that that price point is a little high for you, there's also some good online tools that you can use. I know Pre- Precision Hydration has a, a free like form you fill out. You answer a bunch of questions that kind of are tied to the stuff that I just talked about here. And then they will give you a starting point. So uh, if you want to kind of go that route, you can head over to their website and they'll, they'll recommend you some product that they're selling as well, which you can take it or leave it. They'll, I mean, you can use whatever electrolyte supplement you want uh, for, for this type of thing. Um, but that data point or that information could be useful if you're having a hard time getting to it through the th- stuff that I mentioned here. All right, let's uh, jump into uh a few other things along this. Um, one other thing uh, that I'm going to mention with the hydration stuff is some of the pitfalls with the research, just so you know. Um, the research is mostly done with this type of stuff by inducing dehydration versus letting it naturally and gradually happen throughout the course of exercise. So a lot of times what they'll do is they'll maybe like put, have like a diuretic or a sauna or something like that. And they'll drop it down below that 2% uh, body weight reduction number, and then have that the, the performance done in order to like, see if it's been impacted or not. So that, that can add some, some potential pitfalls in the sense that it's not necessarily going to be like a gradual context specific reduction, which could make it a little bit different in real life. So maybe another reason why we see some of those ranges stretch well beyond that without necessarily being a performance dip. With that said, it does tell us that consistently unaddressed dehydration can have pretty big impacts on performance. So we do want to make sure we're not just throwing it all out the window because some of the studies and research weren't done as quite specifically as we'd maybe like and uh, you know go for that 9.8% reduction like Gabrielassi had at... Uh, um, on his marathon in uh, Dubai. All right. If I missed something that you wanted me to touch on with this topic or would like me to dive into a different aspect of it deeper, feel free to reach out to me at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors are my friends at Element and Gooder Sunglasses. Element makes a great electrolyte supplement and right now they are giving away a free sample pack that's one of each of their flavors. 
Gooder is giving you 15% off your orders with your promo code HPO. Head to the show notes or to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors for links, details, and discount options. Let's get into our next topic. This one will be a little shorter, but still fun to talk about, which is treadmill running. So the general question that was sent is, is, what are my thoughts about running on a treadmill? And I think treadmills are a great tool, but there are things you want to look out for when you're using those. So unless your race is on a treadmill, which very few people are going to have as a, you know, a target, the environment in which you're training in is going to be different. So treadmills, especially some of these more modern ones that have pretty cushioned platforms is going to be different than the pavement that you're likely going to race on, or certainly the trails you're going to race on. So keeping in mind, if you did like say your entire training on a treadmill, you are removing some of the mechanical variances and the mechanical specifics that you would likely have on race day, even if it's a flat marathon course on pavement. So that's just worth considering. That doesn't mean you have to say no treadmill work because I'm racing a road marathon or no treadmill work because I'm racing a trail, uh, running a trail. It just means be mindful of how often you use it. If, if you're using the treadmill a few times a week and you're still getting outside the other half of the time, and especially if you're focusing some of your quality sessions and some of your race specific sessions in the train or on the train that you're going to have, I think they can be great tools. And when we're talking about summer training, the heat, this is where treadmills can really shine because we're looking for you to be able to produce a specific type of performance and If you need to maintain a specific pace at say a marathon or a 5k, and it's nearly impossible to do that, or you have to work way harder to produce that pace because it's a hundred degrees outside. This is where a treadmill can be very beneficial. Some other things that are really cool about treadmills is they eliminate a ton of variables. So if you're really trying to dial in things like assessing whether your training is resulting in the improvements you want. Being able to control the environment as precisely as you can on a treadmill from things like exact elevation, uh, exact temperature, exact surface from one workout to the next to gauge that improvement. This is where I really love treadmills. So let's look at an example here. Let's say we're working on short intervals. We're doing, we're working on VO2 max. So we're hitting things that are like, you know, maybe two, three minutes in duration, somewhere around there. Uh, If you start doing your workouts on that first week, and you do them on the treadmill and then you go and you continue to do them on a variety of different surfaces and things like that. And then you come back four or five, six weeks later, do that exact same workout on the treadmill. You can control that environment so much so that you're going to get a much closer look at where your improvements were. Some of the coaching clients I work with will do this where they'll, they'll do a couple weeks worth of workouts, which is generally the timeline that we like to, we'd expect to start seeing some adaptations take place with a given intensity target. And, you know, they'll ch- check maybe every two or three weeks. They'll just move that workout to the treadmill, test again, and see, are we heading in the right direction? You know, if not, why, what do we need to change? Or if yes, let's keep doing these things that we're doing because we're clearly heading in the right the right direction. So that's where I think treadmills really would, would shine. Other things is like elevation. So you got some pros and cons here. If you have a race that's got very steep climbs and you just don't have access to that, having a treadmill that you can do an incline on can be great. And you can also address the very specific inclines that you'll see on race day. One of the hard things about training, even in hilly areas, when you're doing a hilly race is the hills may not always mimic as precisely the hills you're going to do on race day. 
with a treadmill, you can look at the elevation profile of a race and look at some of the key climbs and say like, okay, there's three key climbs. One of them's a 12% incline. One of them's an 8%. The other one's a 15%. You can actually structure some of your training on the treadmill to target those exact things and work on your mechanics very specifically with that. Some of the cons or downsides to it is again, we're on this flat, very controlled platform. So even with the incline, you're going to get very little variance, especially like from side to side type movements that you're likely going to have on a very trained trail. Like when you step your foot down on a trail, you're not stepping down on a perfectly fat, flat, consistently stable, consistently the same level of softness as you would be running over rocks, roots, like divots in the dirt and just general undulations as you can see on the trail. So that's maybe the downside of doing your elevation on there. The other part is it's really hard to replicate downhill running on a treadmill. Some treadmills will go with a reduction. You can actually do like, I think up to like negative 6%. I've seen people actually stack books behind their treadmill to give themselves a downhill run. Problem with this is a lot of times there's a governor on the machine that will keep it from going past a certain speed. So if you're really working on a very specific pace on that downhill ascent, you may not be able to do it on the treadmill. I would heavily advise against the book stacking behind. Um, one of the reasons why treadmills put a governor on the speed for that is it's really hard on the treadmill motors. So you'll burn that. You'll likely burn that thing out if you do it too much. Um, so don't go and spend thousands of dollars on a treadmill and stack books or weights behind it and burn your motor out and hope that they cover that <laughs> that for you. Um, but yeah, those are some things I like to consider with the treadmill. I think, uh, you know, another one that I like to hit on too, because a lot of times I'm working with really busy people who have very specific schedules or the time they can train is just not ideal or not safe. And having access to a treadmill just allows them to do any type of training. So, uh, one that comes up a lot of times will be like, you know, I have, uh, you have a parent with kids and they can't just leave their kids at home, but their kids can more or less be playing while they're on the treadmill or something like that. Great option. Uh, you have to wake up super early in the morning and it's just not a safe area to be running in the dark or late at night or something like that. You know, a treadmill can help without those type of situations too. So ultimately when I talk to people about this, it's pretty rare that someone has the perfect professional athletes availability with training and access to things like resources to be able to do it. So we're oftentimes looking at it through the lens of let's look at your lifestyle try to cause the least amount of stress outside of the physical stress we're trying to induce in training in the rest of your life. And if a treadmill helps you get to that, I think, you know, the question sort of answers itself to some degree. All right, folks, those are the questions I wanted to hit on for this episode. Thanks a bunch for tuning in. If, uh, if you do have questions you'd like to submit about the ones we talked about here or completely different from these, definitely feel free to reach out to me on social media or at hpopodcast at gmail.com and I'll add them to the list of episodes to do. Um, in the meantime, uh, shoot me a note if you uh, have any uh, interesting stories about uh, hydrating and things like that or treadmill workouts and stuff like that. I always love to hear about that sort of stuff and what people are working on. And, uh, you know, maybe some stuff that I missed or that you found that is counter to what I described here today, but otherwise everyone have a great rest of the day and, uh, come back and listen to some more episodes of the human performance outlers podcast. All right, folks, if you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. 
I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 